family. Let me just read you a couple verses. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. To be a follower of Jesus means that you have come into an identity that cuts so deep that it even begins to reconfigure the natural bonds of family, that it begins to reorganize and reprioritize such that Jesus becomes the primary allegiance of your life, the fundamental bond. We often talk about first family, the church as a first family. And it's one of those things that you hear a lot in churches, but you very rarely see lived out. But a sign that Jesus has become our central identity, the one whom we have hung our life on, is that he redraws the boundaries of your life, the social boundaries of your life, the communal boundaries of your life. And to be clear, Jesus doesn't abolish the natural family, and I think he affirms it, but there's an idolatry to the natural family. Even in an individualistic culture like the United States, where arguably we have the lowest view of family in human history in terms of the bonds compared to other cultures, there's still a way in which often our families become the priority in our lives and become very easily idols where Jesus doesn't have a place. And as I've been arguing for the past couple of weeks that Jesus, putting Jesus first actually is how you love your family most. To love, as I said last week, to love God more than your children is actually how you love your children more. To love God more than your spouse is how you love your spouse more. Because the love of God is not a love that's in competition with other loves. It's a love that actually heightens and elevates and purifies and sanctifies and orders rightly. And so it's the same with family. And we've been talking since Easter about what I've called um, a new creation sexuality. I didn't talk about this last week. But I want to return to this category of new creation sexuality. And what I mean by that is that with the advent of Jesus and his resurrection, there's something new that comes into the picture that was not something that you could imagine based on the old creation. Jesus affirms the goodness of marriage as given in the original creation. He affirms it. And yet, he introduces possibilities for family and life that exceed it, that go beyond it. The first one we looked at was the idea of singleness. In the Bible, you find no affirmation of singleness before Jesus. Singleness was a curse. It was a sign that you were unattached, that you were barren. You would have no children. You have no future. You have no belonging. To be single was a curse. There was no possibility for it. And here Jesus says that there are eunuchs for the kingdom. There's a place. There's a family. There's the possibility of life that doesn't involve marriage and procreation and physical sexuality. And the idea, the second, and what I want to focus on today is this idea that there is a family, the family of God, that is, in a sense, the fruit of a new creation sexuality. Just as a husband and wife join and the fruit of their love is children and a household, a new creation sexuality, there is the fruit of the family of faith, 
that is, comes into existence. And so that's what I want us to explore this morning. What does it mean for us to be a family, the family of Jesus? This is a language that we're familiar with, but I don't know if we actually think it very deeply. And so I, there's three questions I want us to wrestle with this morning. One, how do you belong to this family? What's the character of the family? And then how do you build the family? So how do you belong to the family? How, what's the character of the family? And how do you build this kind of family? The first question, how do you belong to this family? Let's return to our text. And I need to give you a little bit more background. In chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus uh, has called his disciples to himself. And it says he went up on a mountain. In verse 13 it says, And Jesus went up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And this is when he names all of his disciples. And then, when they come back down from the mountain, they go to Jesus' home. Presumably all the disciples and Jesus. And then the crowds find them again. And it says that there was such a huge crowd that, that Jesus' natural family, his brothers and his mother, they hear about what's going on, and they, and they say to themselves, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. And they go and they try to seize him. And then there's a story about the binding, uh, Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees about binding the strong man, and I didn't include it here, but it's actually an interesting uh, piece in the text that has to do with the household. But then we get after this scene as Jesus' family finally is coming to him, and they can't get inside the house because it's too crowded. And so what they do is they send word. Jesus, you need to come out. We need to have a conversation with you. We need to talk some sense into you. Because what you're doing, your ministry, is it's, it's harming the family. We don't even have access to you. So this is the broader narrative context. This is the broader story. To ask this question, so what does it mean to belong? What does it mean to belong? And the first positive truth about belonging is... Is, is found in that verse that I, it's not, in our, not printed there, but it's when Jesus went up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So we belong because Jesus called us. That's the first truth about belonging. He calls us. Those whom he desired, he called, and they come to him. And that's the scene you get of his disciples coming to him. And the basis of belonging and, and being part of the family of God is simply that Jesus called you. He called you, and you came. It's a beautiful truth. I mean, and there's a lot of analogy um, with natural family. Our children did not choose to be born. I didn't choose to be born. Kids, you did not choose to be born. You're, you were simply desired by your parents. They desired you, and you came. And it's the same with Jesus. And that's the language we find in the Bible again and again, where Jesus talks about being born again. Paul talks about being adopted into the family of God. And the reason you belong is simply because he desired it. He wanted you. And what's so important about this is, is that you don't belong because you deserve to belong or because you did something to get in. It's very different from, say, um, your, your uh, membership in, say, a professional organization. If you're a doctor or a lawyer or an academic, or um, uh, you belong to different organizations, and you belong because you deserve to belong. You, you did the hard work. You, you earned it. You have the degree. You're a professional. But the church is very different from that. You don't belong to the church because you worked hard to get in. You belong because the Lord desired it. He desired you. He called you. 
And so that's such an important truth to understand about belonging. You weren't looking for Jesus, but he was looking for you. And that's the grace. But, but there's a negative truth that is more prominent in this text that I think it's helpful for us to reflect on. And it's this, that proximity to Jesus, familiarity to Jesus, does not guarantee a vital and proper relationship with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus and familiarity with Jesus does not mean you're in a vital relationship with Jesus. And all you have to do is look at how Jesus' family respond to him. They think he's out of his mind and they want to take control of him. They don't really understand him and yet they grew up with him, right? And I think this is a really important truth for us to keep bare in mind, especially in a city like Milwaukee, which is a very religious city, at least if you were to look at the architecture. There's great cathedrals all over the city. If you grew up in Milwaukee, the likelihood of you not having a church connection, whether Catholic or Lutheran, is very, very small. (laughs) I like what Flannery O'Connor says about the South, the writer. She says this about the South. She says, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. And I think it's the same with the city of Milwaukee. It is certainly not a Christ-centered city, but it is certainly a Christ-haunted city. Jesus is everywhere in the background. And I think this text is so radical in that it really challenges us, those who grew up within a kind of Christian culture, just because you grew up in church, just because you feel familiar with the stories of the Bible, does not mean you have a vital relationship with Jesus. That doesn't mean you really belong. His family doesn't understand him. And it's, it's worth reflecting, why is it that they're so upset with Jesus and they want to intervene and have a session? Very likely it's that Jesus... Who are all these people? You're out of your mind. You're endangering the family. This is fanaticism. Who are all these strangers? And I find this is often the case in uh, Christianized places, right? There's almost like these two tiers. Like, I, you know, I go to church and I believe in God, but I'm not one of those crazy radical Christians that does everything and thinks and talks about Jesus all the time. You know, Jesus is more... He's in the background, right? The priority is the family, and then Jesus. But Jesus won't have it that way. It can't happen. And, you know, I think it's important to, to, you know, the reality of unbelief. It says in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. (laughs) They simply disbelieved in him. They were skeptics like everybody else. And it's interesting that unbelief, unbelief towards Jesus runs deepest and it's, it's strongest in those places where people are most familiar with Jesus. Unbelief is deepest in the places where people are most familiar with Jesus. And that's why I think doing ministry in Milwaukee and sharing the faith in Milwaukee is such a challenge. Because I know who Jesus is. I know what the church is. I know what it's all about. But it's sort of like a vaccination, right? I mean, a vaccination is you just get a little bit of the disease or, you know, the, the virus and you build up an antibodies and immunity so you don't get the real thing, right? That's how vaccinations work. And I think that works in the church as well. Like, you get just enough Jesus to keep you from getting the real thing. That, that's, and that's the danger of growing up in a church culture, in a Christianized culture, 
And it's a danger of growing up in the church when you don't respond to Jesus. Because the more you hear Jesus talking and, the, and, and refuse to respond, the harder and the more vaccinated you will become from actually ever responding. It's the principle of the hardness of heart, right? I mean, one of the Puritans said that the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. You can't be in the presence of Jesus in the word of God and hear it and not respond without it doing something to you. Either it's going to soften your heart and it's going to bring you towards God or it's going to harden your heart and harden and harden and harden so that at a certain point you won't be able to respond. And I think that's the reality of Christianized context and this is what you see with the family of Jesus. But what you do see with what is, I wish we could spend more time, but what you do see is this beautiful picture of this vital relationship of the family of Jesus. What does it mean to have a believing, vital relationship with Jesus? What does this look like? Three things we see here. One, you see people that are seated. It says they're seated around Jesus. They're, they're sitting at his feet. They're sitting at his feet. They bow their lives, right? That's, that's what it means to have Jesus as the center of your life, to be a part of this family, is that you're sitting before him. You've bowed your life before him. You've submitted your family to his family. But you're with his people as well. You're, you're in community. You're in community with the family, and you're doing what he says. I mean, Jesus says, who, my brothers and my mother, who are they? Whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Those who respond to who God is. Those are the, the people who are in the family. And so that's the picture we get of, of what it means to belong, of the sign that we belong. And it's a radical devotion to Jesus. It's a radical devotion to Jesus that creates a new kind of family, a different kind of family, which is the, the second question I want us to reflect on is what is the character of Jesus' family? What's the character of this family? And to answer this question, I think it's important and, you know, that Je- we recognize that Jesus is the center of the family. He's the center. He's the one who gives it its purpose and its mission and its values. And I think it's important for us to reflect for a moment and apply this, this question. What does it mean for us at a practical level for City Reformed Church for Jesus to be the organizing center of our lives? Again, I, in church, we, just, we say these things like first family and Jesus is the center of our lives. And, but what does it actually mean? What does it look like? I think we're comfortable with the sort of um, high-level abstract things. But first, I think it's important for us just to recognize that there's the temptation for all kinds of alternative centers in the church. Alternative centers. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, human nature is that like attracts like. We tend to be drawn to the people that are like us, that, that get us, that we get. So obviously that means race, that means socioeconomic sort of status, that means more specifically culture, like, oh, I like this kind, these kinds of movies or television, or I like this kind of beer, or I like this kind of food. And, and those are natural bonds, and they're good. They're not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But there's always a danger in a church that, that a church is organized really around natural human bonds and not actually around Jesus. And we'll always be wrestling with this, because and, and whenever you visit a church, one of the things you're doing is, of course, you're thinking, is this... Can this guy preach? Um, is it worship something I like? But you're thinking, are these my people? Are these my people? Can I, do I have a place in this community? And that's not a bad question. But recognize that we have to ask this question about 
that, that the community of Jesus is supernatural community. Because if it weren't for Jesus, it shouldn't exist. The, the, the family of God, the, the, the church community needs to be, to be the kind of community that simply could not exist without Jesus. And so what would it mean for our church not to be organized around bloodlines and demographics and race and, and taste and music or beer or whatever, but what would it mean for it to only be possible to exist because of Jesus? And, and, and that's, that, that's hard. But one of, the, one of the things about doing that is it, that's why these sacraments are so important, right? Last week we baptized Henry and Eli. And the sacrament of baptism is a sacrament of initiation. You belong to the family. Your identity is primary, not to Hoffman or a cot, but a Christian. And you belong to this family. And all of us who come to this table are baptized and we belong and, and what it means is our lives are ordered around the dying and rising of Jesus. That's what this baptism is. It's, it's a baptism into the dying and rising of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table, it's a sacrament of nurture. In other words, we're, we're, we're fed around the dying and rising of Jesus. And so these sacraments play such a central role in organizing our imaginations and our life and helping us to weave together around the dying and rising of Jesus. And that's central to what it means to be a community with a center. And I think what you get when we're not organized around the dying and rising of Jesus is what you get is tribalism. And that's always the danger of family. And that's always the danger of the idol of the family. It's a natural idol. And the, and the idol of the tribe is simply like, this is my people, and I have to protect it, right? In order to protect the intimacy, the vulnerability, the openness, and the freedom, I protect it from outsiders those who might threaten it, those who don't quite fit into it. And there's always that danger in a church. And when a church feels tribal, what's happened is there's been some alternative center, however subtle, whether it's a socioeconomic class, whether it's a racial class, whether it's a kind of political agenda, such that those who don't fit it are excluded or feel excluded. And we always have to be asking ourselves this question. Is there a tribal mentality going on here? Do we, and, and, and what I'm not saying here is that you drop your culture at the door. That's impossible to do. We cannot do that. Culture is good. And yet there's a way that it gets reordered to the dying and rising of Jesus. And that you hold your culture in such a way that it's not alienating to others. Right? And the beautiful thing about a church is that over time it just develops its own culture. Its own eclectic, quirky culture of all the different kinds of things that come into it. But there's a, open, there's a hospitality about it. There's an openness about it. See, the reality is, is that the more Jesus becomes the exclusive truth of your life, the more he becomes your identity, the more inclusive your life becomes. The more Jesus becomes the exclusive truth of your life, the more your life becomes inclusive. Why? Because no longer is your identity what makes what, what is precious to you hung on something that can be harmed by some stranger or outsider coming in? It can't. And so as a church family, and here's the beautiful thing about the, the family of God, and this is, makes it different from every other family. The more intimate the family of Jesus grows, the more hospitable it grows. Why? Because the more we, we gather our hearts around the heart of Jesus, and the heart of Jesus is for others. The heart of Jesus is outward. It's hospitable. And this is precisely, though, what was so scandalous to Jesus' family. Jesus, you're threatening the family. Who are all these strangers? We can't even get in. 
We don't have access to you. The character of Jesus' family is one of radical hospitality. It is making room for the stranger to be welcomed as a friend. We think about marriage. The structure of marriage that is, is one that is, as God gave it, open to new life. To be married is to be always open to the possibility of new life, right? You should. The possibility that something could come from your love and your union that is new, a stranger. Every child that comes out of the womb is a stranger. You don't know who that child is and who that child will be become. But part of marriage is you're just welcoming new life, these strangers that become your children, your friends, your family, right? And it's the same with the household of God. It's, it's just to have an openness such that new life, new spiritual life can always come in and have a place and have a home and belong. And I think this is, has to be an imperative for us as a church. And especially in the light of what the scriptures teach about singleness and sexuality, what we've been talking about. I sat around this past week talking with a group of 40 pastors in this room. And one of our conversations was on, um, on sexuality and ministering to those with same-sex attraction in the church. And again and again, the conversation kept coming back to this idea that um, there's incredible loneliness for those who are same-sex attracted, especially you know, if they can't marry. But there's also incredible loneliness for those who are just single, whatever the sexual attraction, and how difficult it is to find community. And, 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 and friends, this is, where, this is where the family of God has to play such a critical role that singles become part of our lives and, they, and we become part of their life. As at the core of becoming the family of Jesus is making space for one another in each other's lives. And this requires hospitality and an openness. And uh, married people with little kids, you have to make structural space in your life for others that have nothing to do with your children. Invite them in, actually make them part of your family. And single people, as this doesn't run just one way, make time and space in your life for families for people who are not like you. And I would say it applies as well for those from different sort of backgrounds. Again, we tend to be attracted by those people who are like us. And, we, and it's not wrong to have friendship with people that you resonate with. You know, are you seeking friendships, though, with people in the church that are really different from you, whose politics are very different from you, who, whose, whose socioeconomic background is really different from you? That's what it means to be hospitable. It's welcoming, welcoming strangeness into your life. And what you get is incredible blessing. Okay, so how do we do this? It's one thing to talk about it, I realize this, but how do we do this? And I, this is the last point, uh, and, and it's very, it's very um, in many ways, this church is already doing this. And I could give a lot of examples and call people out, but I won't do that. But how do we build and cultivate this kind of spiritual family of Jesus? And, and I want to introduce a word to you, which you know, but I want to put it in a verb. You household together. It's householding. That's how you become a family, is you household together. See, when, when, you, when, you, when you get married and you have children, you, you don't just have children in a family, you create a household. And a household involves more than just the, the people in it. It, it. it involves maintaining a home, paying for a mortgage, mowing the lawn, making dinner, changing diapers, taking kids to school. 
It involves everything that's involved in a household. There's a mission, right? And there's a common work of having a household. And to be, it's one thing to be a guest, right? It's, and, and what I'm saying is that don't just invite one another over for dinner and then, you know, a nice meal and then leave. Invite people into your household. See, that's what, that's what family is, right? You come into the household and so, you know, you're not just there as a guest kind of watching and observing and enjoying a good meal or, or uh, doing something together. You're actually, in, you're part of the work and part of the mission of the household. You become a brother and a sister and aunt and uncle. And there's incredible communal power, I think, for this. I mean, I think the loneliness that often we feel in life, and this, this goes for, for everyone, is a sense that we don't have a household that we belong to. It's not just that we have somebody to talk to. I mean, sometimes, and you know this, it, you don't, it's not like you just want to talk to someone. You just want to be in, you want to be present in a place where there's life and activity. You want to... And, and, and a household is a place where kinship develops, intimacy develops, belonging develops around a shared mission and a shared work and common meals. And that's the glue, right? I mean, and in marriage, the glue of marriage, what keeps things going isn't simply like a, I always am feeling this, this warm affection towards my wife. It's really the fact that we have a mission, we have a purpose, we have common work and responsibilities together, and that just builds and deepens the bonds. And many of you know in life that people who you normally, and, and think about your work context, people in your work context that you would never choose as friends be, end up becoming great friends. Why? Because you just work beside them every day, day in and day out. And you have this shared experience, this common bond. And I think that's important for us to do as a church. We have to share households. And many of you do this. You watch one another's kids. You take them, pick them up and take them to school. You have singles that are um, even living in the home, helping with the kids. I mean, it's this beautiful matrix of connectedness and responsibility with one another. And don't underestimate the power of belonging to a household to deal and address the, our deep, deep desire for belonging and intimacy I want to close with a brief reflection on our scripture um, reading from the sacred reading. I love the first chapter of the book of Ruth and the story of Naomi. And some of you are familiar with it, but some of you are probably wondering what that was about. Naomi as a Hebrew woman that because of famine, her and her husband moved to the land of Moab which were historically the enemies of the people of Israel. And they have children there, two sons. And the two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But all the men die. The father dies, the sons die, and then they're all widows. And Naomi decides to travel back to the land of Judah. She's heard that there's food there. And her daughter-in-law decided to go with her. And she says, no, you can still marry, right? Stay here, stay with your people, with your gods, and marry. And what you have is this beautiful scene where both of them say, we'll go with you. We don't want to leave you. Here you have this old woman who's going to be completely vulnerable. And remember, in the ancient world, to be an unattached woman was very dangerous on multiple levels. I mean, you don't have a secure, you don't have financial means. You're vulnerable. And here... What you have is these women going back, and so Orpah stays, but Ruth, it says, she clung to her. Ruth's like, I'm not letting you go. 
Naomi, I'm not letting you go. And you have to realize how risky this is because they're going back to the land of Judah, right? It's not as if she's staying in Moab where she probably could get another husband. She's going back to a place where the likelihood, it was forbidden for a Jewish man to marry a non-Jewish woman. And so it's sort of like a sentence of, of singleness, of, of, of widowhood for the rest of her life. And, and I love what Ruth says to Naomi when she, she's leaving. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and also more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And this is a beautiful picture at a human level of the power of love, the bonds of love to overcome natural, racial, and family dynamics in order for the sake of love. And I think that Ruth really points us to Jesus himself. Because in a way, Jesus is a fulfillment of Ruth. Right? He refuses to leave. He clings to us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to let us go, leave the land of Moab, and go into Judah alone. He's going to come with us. He's going to cling with us. Not only that, he will lodge with us. He will leave aside his divinity. Well, he brings it with him. (laughs) He doesn't lose that. Uh, Theological correction. (laughs) But there's a sense in which Jesus himself, right, he travels into the far country as the God-man to take on flesh. He becomes us, right? He, takes, he becomes our people. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And of course, we know that he dies, right? And he is buried in our place. And that in baptism, we are buried in him. We die in him and we are buried in him. And we know that his death is the death that doesn't allow us to be separated his death is a death that doesn't allow us to be separated from his love and from his family. Friends, that is, that is the grace and the glue and the fabric of the Christian family. The love of Jesus which clings to us, which calls us in. Let's pray. Oh God, may you give us a vision for being your people, your family. That church would be something more than simply a worship service on a Sunday morning. But it would be a beautiful quilt of different colored, different cultured, different kinds of households woven together into a fabric that is strong to receive and continue to receive new life, new people, different kinds of people into its midst. Oh Lord, may it be so that we be the kind of church, may we aspire to challenge ourselves, to open ourselves up, to the stranger, to the alien, to those who are not like us. And may you drive us more deeply around the person of Jesus who loves us and died for us. We pray in his name. Amen.